This morning we're starting a five-week series that's really a three-year series. Right? We started this a while back. It's called Learning to Love God's Word, and it's um, really just taking, uh, taking a chance to ask the question about every book of the Bible. There's 66 books in Scripture. What is God saying to us in this part of His Word? What, what is it that we need that he has to say to us here in a way that's distinctive? Uh, why do we need 66 different voices speaking into our spiritual formation? What would we be missing out if we hadn't heard from the major prophets? That's what we'll start today. So if you're interested in getting caught up, we, we have you know recordings of lots of other sermons. We do two of these series a year, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. And uh, we have been working our way through the Old Testament, and now we're at what's called the major prophets. Now, it's not because the other prophets are unimportant. It's major in the, in the sense of, of the Latin meaning of that word, just longer, right? These prophets said more things than the other shorter prophetic books that we'll come to the next time we do one of these series. So the major prophets are Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote another shorter book called Lamentations. We'll get to that. Uh, Ezekiel, and then the book of Daniel. So today we're going to hear from Isaiah, and we're going to hear we're going to hear Isaiah speak to um, a group of God's people at a point in in the history of uh, the nation of Israel when it was no longer one nation. So there was a point in which uh, all of this territory was united under three kings, first Saul and then David and then David's son Solomon. And then God's people splintered and, and divided and fractured into a northern kingdom that had lots of territory called Israel. And then the southern kingdom that had less territory, but they controlled this area right here where the city of Jerusalem is. And that was the nation of Judah. And so uh, for several centuries, there's this conflict, this tension, this rift between the two. And at the moment that Isaiah begins to speak his words of prophecy and, and they're written down, is a moment when it is clear that that northern kingdom of Israel has gone off the rails. And they have turned their back on God, and they are worshiping many other gods, and they're seeking the things that matter most to them in so many other places than in God himself. And so it's possible for the worshipers of God who live here in Judah to think, yeah, we kind of got it good. We're kind of getting it right. The bad people live up there, and the good people live down here. And Isaiah We're good, right? So ask yourself that question as you hear a few excerpts read from Isaiah chapter 1. Now, it's going to sound a little bit like we're skipping around. The chapter is long, so we're hitting some highlights. But they're all responding to that question. Hey, Isaiah, we're, we're the good ones, right? Let's listen. Thank you, Donna. The scripture reading this morning is selections from Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for inviting us to reason together with you. Thank you for inviting us to hear your word. May our hearts be tender to hear everything that you have to say to those who are your people to those who think they are your people but are not, to those who are not yet your people but are being drawn to you. Help us all to have soft hearts before you. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Don't be as dumb as a donkey. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. And chapter 1 summarizes so many of the things that run throughout the whole book, and one of them is this kind of warning from God himself. Don't, don't be as dumb as a donkey. Now, in our culture, 
donkeys tend to symbolize stubbornness, right? In ancient Israelite culture, stubbornness was a part of it, but stupidity. Donkeys were proverbial for just being dumb. Now, these days in, in, in English, we tend to say dumb as an ox, right? Don't know why we pick on the oxen and the Israelites picked on the donkeys. Wait a minute, maybe I do know why they picked on the donkeys after looking at that picture, right? Um, but you hear, you hear God saying, this makes no sense. Even a donkey is smart enough to recognize where the owner puts the food every day. Even a donkey knows where its food comes from. But my people have forgotten me. So here's God calling out and saying, your hearts are far from me, and it should not be this way. Isaiah is full of God making that appeal and calling out to people whose hearts are far from him and saying, no, no, no. So Isaiah tells us the charge that God brings. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. This is courtroom language. All Israelites knew that by the testimony of two or three witnesses is, is someone's credibility established. And so God is calling two witnesses. The heavens and the earth will attest to the fact that what I'm about to say is true. I raised children, and they've rebelled against me. I fed my donkey every day for decades, and it remembers me. But you have forgotten the one who has sustained you for centuries. It should not be this way. As you read through Isaiah, you get this sense not of just that, you know, God is a king and he's a little bit miffed that his subjects have forgotten about him. Or God's a lawmaker and he's upset that people aren't really buying into his policies. You get different images, like God is the father. God is the father whose children have said, forget you, old man. You are a loser, and you are no longer relevant to my life. What heartbreak would happen if children said that to a father? Throughout Isaiah, God will use the image of being the husband, a husband whose wife has said, I will find more joy in the arms of other lovers than I ever found with you. And the heartbreak of God knowing that those lovers will ultimately be faithless and break the heart of his bride again and again and again and again. So this isn't God thundering out in judgment and anger and saying, how dare you leave me, woman? This is God with heartbreak and tears saying, why are your hearts drifting from me? It should not be this way. Throughout Isaiah, God will use the image of himself as a shepherd. I've always been there to protect my sheep. I've always walked with you. And now you say to me, that good grass we're eating, we found it ourselves. 
Those wolves, we scared them away by bleeding and waggling our tails and showing them our puffy wool. Take that, you wolves. And God says, you'd have to be dumber than a donkey to think like that. Sheep aren't scary. I was the shepherd who was always with you. But my people have forgotten me. And it should not be this way. God is a just judge. He doesn't bring charges like this against people whose hearts are far from him without evidence. What's the evidence he provides that this is the case? Well, he he presents plenty of evidence that his people, in this case, the people of Judah, that southern kingdom, thinking we got it made, the bad people are somewhere else. We're the good ones, right? And is saying, look at all the evidence that you are practicing religion without any relationship to me. My people have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Verse 11 then starts to present the evidence. Your sacrifices. I've had enough. I've had enough of you bringing sheep and bulls into the courts of my temple when your hearts are somewhere else. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, you are trampling my courts. You are not worshiping me. Your heart is given to another God. And yet you bring your religion and your acts of worship. Verse 13, vain offerings. When you pray and you burn incense as a symbol of your prayers going up to heaven... It makes me want to puke. Don't drink the water this weekend if you live in DeKalb County, right? This is God saying, when I drink the water of your prayers, it gives me diarrhea. It makes me sick. You may think I'm the kind of God who doesn't mind being worshipped by people who have given their hearts to another, but I'm not that kind of God. You may think that I don't care that your outward acts of worship are all just right and your heart is miles away from me. But I'm not that kind of God. I'm a God who loves integrity. I love it when the outward act of worship and the heart are one. I love it when you love me with your whole heart because that is how I always love you. It's the only way he knows how to love. And so it's the kind of love he longs for us to express to him. God gives more evidence, doesn't he? That many times our hearts are far from him. He says, look, you're you're really giving your hearts to other gods and goddesses. To give you what matters most. Now, this isn't all detailed in Isaiah chapter 1, but if you read the the historical background of when Isaiah lived, and if you keep reading the rest of these 66 chapters, you get this sense that, that God's people have started going to other gods to get what matters most to them, power and protection and prosperity, particularly in terms of fertility, having children and having bountiful crops. 
God gave us maybe the land and we have this fancy temple in Jerusalem. But man, when it comes to power, nobody can beat the Canaanite god Baal. When it comes to fertility, we need Asherah and we need her help bad. Because God, you, he says he'll give us that stuff, but he never really follows through. So when it matters most, we're going somewhere else. And you know what happens when you start to build all of your heart around finding power and prosperity for yourself? Then people who have no power and can't do anything to help you prosper, you ignore them and mistreat them. Which is why the book of Isaiah is filled with calls for God's people to return to justice. I won't listen to your prayers because... At the same moment you're praying to me, you are practicing oppression. And I want you to cease doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. You've gotten so attached to gods of power and goddesses of prosperity that people who have no power and people who aren't prospering don't matter to you. That is my proof that your heart is a million miles away from me. God follows this up with a warning. The warning starts in verses 7 through 9. At, at the moment that Isaiah spoke these words, Jerusalem was whole, the temple was standing the Babylonian Empire had not arisen yet, but God has promised, has said, if you keep living this way and mistreating people made in my image and treating me like I don't care where your heart is when you are here to worship me, if you keep treating me and my image bearers this way, then one day, the Babylonian Empire will arise, will conquer your city, will destroy the temple, and you will be banished from the land I gave you. Because I gave it to you so that you could be a light to the nations, showing people what my heart is like. And if you insist on showing people that my heart cares nothing for the powerless, that my heart cares nothing for those who aren't prospering. That my heart cares nothing for where your heart is when you come to me. Then I will, I will have to take that gift away and lead you into exile. So these verses are a foreshadowing, a foretaste of what would happen if our hearts remain far from God. Your country lies desolate. Foreigners devour your land. The daughter of Zion, that's a name for Jerusalem, is left like a shack in the middle of a cucumber field after the harvest has been collected. It was built to last for a couple weeks and nobody is keeping it up and it is about to fall. God is holy in his justice and his integrity. And so the whole book of Isaiah confronts us with this kind of question. Are we, are we worshiping God with blood on our hands? Are we coming to him 
to practice religion without relationship? Are we saying, you know, I kind of get it right because I'm kind of here most weeks. And I kind of do the worship thing. Every once in a while, I even read the Bible. And there's a bumper sticker on the back of my car that if somebody squints hard enough, they know it stands for Jesus. I got some outward stuff right. It's not wrong to have the outward right. It's wrong to have religion with no relationship. It's wrong to be a donkey. So stupid that you can't even see. You know, when I lift up my hands to God in prayer, He can see the blood stains on them. He can tell if I secretly hate Him while I'm telling everyone I love Him. He can tell. If I worship him as the shepherd who cares for the sheep, at the same time I'm mistreating other people. He can see it. He's not blind. We're the blind ones. And so we have to know that he's a God who's holy in justice and integrity. But if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah at all, You know, that's not the only thing it says. That God is also holy in his love and mercy. So he he invites us. When we find our hearts far from him, to bring our hearts near to him again. Listen, as God issues that invitation... He says in verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Even if your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Even if they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Wait a minute. How how can the God who is holy in justice and integrity... Make a promise like this. And here's the answer. You and I don't understand holiness. Isaiah calls God the Holy One of Israel more times than any other book in the Bible. Isaiah uses that name for God, the Holy One of Israel, 25 times. The whole rest of the Old Testament, seven times total. 25 times, doesn't matter where you are in Isaiah, early chapters, late chapters, middle chapters, this title, Holy One of Israel, keeps popping up. One of the reasons that I think Isaiah, all of it was written by one author, even though there are lots of theories about how that's not true. This name for God keeps cropping up, the Holy One of Israel. Now, you and I tend to think that God's holiness means that he is morally pure, that, that he is blinding and, and radiant in his purity. So much so that he couldn't stand to be in the presence of anyone who had blood on their hands. Of anybody who had evil in their heart. And that's true. God is holy in his purity. But the word holy applies to every one of God's characteristics. God is the Holy One of Israel. 
He is holy in His purity. He's holy in His justice. He's holy in His integrity. But He's also holy in His love. His love is blinding and radiant. His love is so blazing that you you couldn't imagine it. You couldn't paint a picture of it if you tried. It's so... The word holy means separate. It means unlike us. It means so far removed from us that we couldn't bridge that gap even with our greatest imagination. So the good news of the book of Isaiah is God is holy. Yes, He's holy in His moral purity and justice, but He's just as holy in His love and in His mercy. So the next time someone says God is holy and you feel afraid, catch yourself. Because God is holy also means good news. He's holy in His compassion. Don't you notice it here as Isaiah begins? Chapter 1. Here's the umbrella for reading all the other 65 chapters. Notice where God is called the Holy One of Israel. It's in the context, verse 4, after God has just said, I am the Father who has brought up children, and they have forgotten me and forsaken me. Don't you hear the pain in my heart that comes from my holy love as a father? The Father's heart wouldn't break when the children say, forget you, old man, unless he loved them. The father's heart wouldn't break when he sees the sheep wandering toward the wolves unless he loved them. The husband's heart wouldn't break when he sees his wife running away unless he loved her. And it's because he's holy in his love that he's able to say, Well, let's, let's see a picture of it. He's able to say, let's reason together. You have two choices. Let's think them out. On the one hand, you can keep your heart far from me and the blood on your hands. You can continue to pursue power and prosperity in a way that will harden your heart toward people who have no power, people who aren't prospering. You can keep living that way and experience the consequences. Or, no matter how far your heart has been from me, you can bring it near to me. Now forgive all the evil that's in your heart, that's been in your life. I will wash away the blood on your hands. How can God do this? He's holy. He's just as holy in His love and mercy as He is and His justice and purity. There's a hint at this. A little hint. You have to read slowly and carefully. 
In fact, if you're reading the Bible in a, in a second language, you might slow enough, be slow enough to see this because you couldn't read fast enough. <laughs> if you're reading verse 9 very carefully, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been totally destroyed and wiped out like these cities from the book of Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, proverbial for t- total destruction. Wait a minute, the Lord of hosts, that's the God as the general of all the armies of angels in the universe, is going to leave some survivors. I don't know about you, but if I get to command all the angel armies in the whole universe, I'm going to win. And I'm going to destroy every enemy. And yet we're talking about a God who commands all the angel armies in the whole universe who leaves survivors because His mercy is holy and His love is holy. And He will raise up a servant, a suffering servant. Isaiah talks about that suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 40. And again in chapter 42 and in chapter 53, a servant who will come and who will be broken in the place of his people so that they can be forgiven. A servant in whose life and in whose death justice and mercy meet. God is holy. And that is why he sends us a suffering servant like Jesus to open the way for for our sins to be forgiven, for our hearts to be drawn near to him again. Here's what I want you to hear today. If your heart is far from God, if you are practicing religion without relationship, then God today is is wooing you. He's drawing you. He is saying, come back, come to me. You don't have to stay far from me. Come back, and I will give you one good reason to come back. It's because I have all the resources in the world to utterly destroy sinners. And yet, instead I invite them to come to me and to be forgiven. I make the way. This is why the church practices, has practiced, will continue to practice the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Your sins. There are as many stains on your heart as would be on my shirt if I just took this cup of it's red wine, like it's not water. Thank goodness today it's not water. It's not grape juice. It would leave a stain. And it may never come out. But Jesus says, I will make the way. We remember this story because it's what the Scriptures teach. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus 
took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after the meal, and when he had given thanks for it, he said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Drink from it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. Notice Jesus didn't say, do this as an act of religion, and I won't care where your heart is. This act of religion is only for those who are coming and bringing their whole heart to me in remembrance of me. Are you trusting me as the only one who can wash the blood off your hands? Because the invitation is open. And all who have accepted it are free to come to me again and again and again. If you have accepted that invitation from Jesus, then do what he says this morning. Eat and drink in remembrance of him. I can't because God is holy in his purity. You can because he is also holy in his love and mercy. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you and praise as the one who, who calls out to people whose hearts are far from you, and you invite us to come again, to draw near to you again, and when we do, to find mercy again, to find forgiveness again. And you do that with integrity, not because you believe that evil has no consequences, but because you willingly, out of love, took those consequences upon yourself. Our sin, our evil, our wickedness does have consequences, but you have taken them for us. So with a heart of love and thanksgiving, we receive this bread, this wine, as we remember you. Amen.